This is Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll. I'm Chris. And I'm Amy. And this is our podcast about addiction recovery. You can find us on Spotify, just Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll. You can also find our playlist of all the songs that we include with each episode. So we're there with our podcast and with our playlist in case you're interested in hearing the full songs. Well, today we have a special guest, Julia Parent. She is an ACMHC and currently works as the outpatient therapist at Turning Point. Chris and I got to know Julia because she was there, one of your therapists during your, was it outpatient or IOP? It was IOP when she was my therapist, uh, but I did meet her when I was in residential. She would conduct some of the psychoed groups. So it's great to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be here. And we're excited uh, to talk about the exciting topic. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say exciting, but very important topic of grief and loss. And Julia has a lot of expertise in this, especially within her field, also a cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. And so we really appreciate your insight today on such a a really heavy topic, but so meaningful for so many people in recovery and family and friends and loved ones of those in recovery. Yeah. If you don't mind, just share briefly a little story about your, your recovery from cancer. I was diagnosed with breast cancer about three years ago now and I went through about a year of treatment and when I was doing that I was also an intern at Turning Point and that was hard that was really hard to figure out how I get to grieve and also be a therapist and it was also very fortunate and wonderful because I already had some training in how to grieve. And then I also got additional training in recognizing that I have a lot to learn. It helped me to gain a lot of empathy for what other people are going through when they are dealing with losing their identity and losing extraordinarily large chunks of their life. For me, I... In many ways, I put the idea of cancer, the idea of diabetes, the idea of drug addiction, all of those fall into the same realm in that those are all lifelong diseases. And those are all lifelong diseases that need to be managed properly, which means that you need to not only grieve the life that you have lost, but you also need to lean in and accept the life that you are now moving forward with. Um, so, so grieving became a very personal and passionate thing for me as I was learning it for myself and then recognizing how important it was to be able to help other people in addiction to be able to navigate and go through that. Our society does a really horrible, horrible job of teaching that. We're just really not good about it bottle it up rub some dirt on it yeah yeah or go to the funeral and cry and then the next day you should be fine and go back to work Mm -hmm. or this child is too young to know what's going on let's just shelter them and not expose them to anything and somehow that protects them 
and ignore the fact that they might be going through an incredible amount of pain and loss and not knowing how to verbalize that and not knowing how to reach out. So at a very young age, we're taught that we aren't capable of handling emotions. We're not capable of handling loss. So take it from the top, educate us on this. Okay. So I think it's important to kind of start rather than starting with grief, we need to start with the fact that you have events occur. And, and by, I say, I use the word event rather than trauma because sometimes the events are actually happy events. Um, it can be a happy event of having a child. We just yeah. did that a couple of years ago, <laughs> right? And so when you have that child, it's it's something you're looking forward to. It's this beautiful new creation that's come into your life. It also means that you're losing sleep, <laughs> potentially some sanity. Yeah. It means that you're losing a lot of the independence that you had as a as a couple and as an individual. And so it's not always this horrible thing that's occurred. And I think that that's also something that's really important to point out because sometimes with those happy events, the understanding that there might be some grief involved can build up a lot of shame. Like, oh my goodness, I wanted this. I wanted to have this occur in my life. I wanted to go and have a new job. So I shouldn't feel terrible about the job that I left. I wanted to move across the country. And the fact that I miss the people from before doesn't really matter. And so as soon as you start to care about that and you start to miss that, if you're having that message in your head, then you have the potential of adding shame onto that. And shame gets us where with addiction. Absolutely nowhere or <laughs> right back in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so that's why I, I want to make sure to point that out, that it's it's not always this horrific, horrible, traumatic thing that we're grieving. I think that's really important to point out because I, I honestly never thought about it that way. I really thought about grief, a lot of negative life changes, death, yeah. divorce, you know, the loss of a child, disease and, and things like that. But I can really see the positive that creates conflict and change, right? Mm -hmm. Moving is yeah. change. Having a child is change, good and bad. Yes, right? And and change, change is hard. It is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. It is, right? And it's, it's one of those things where humans are creatures of habit. We do not like change, even if we are the ones that are creating the change. There's going to be resistance. And with that resistance is your grief. So, I've never thought of it that uh, way. So, so when so when I was exposed to the knowledge that I was going to be receiving some pretty radical treatment with um, my cancer, I went through six months of intensive chemotherapy and then I got a bilateral mastectomy and then I did 18 rounds of radiation after that um and I've been on a two-year drug trial and I have I 
almost two years in uh, to uh, hormone blockers. So when I say it's one of those things where it's like, this is a lifelong disease, that cancer can be similar to someone in recovery where it's this attitude of like, oh, well, you're done. You're fixed. You're fine. And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's not how it goes. I mean, no. I mean, obviously, you've been dealing with a lot of intense medical uh, visits and procedures. Mm -hmm. And then there's that ongoing. I mean, you have to still go back Mm -hmm. on a regular frequency, even once they declare you proverbially cancer-free, correct? Correct. Very correct. And, And similar to recovery, if you're not making sure that you're taking care of those things and taking care of your body and you're giving time to yourself and doing the self-healing and the self-love and go to therapy. Therapy is awesome. Um, But doing all of those necessary things, then you're not putting your health first. You're not putting yourself first, which potentially means that you are increasing the risk of having that disease come back. I would say that self-care as I come to know it is a pretty vital piece of recovery, and I could see where that would be the case, regardless of the disease that you're battling. Mm -hmm. For sure. That's where the grief comes in, because it's, I don't know about you when you went through initially, but I personally had kind of a mindset of like, okay, I'm going to go deal with this cancer. I'm going to, am I allowed to swear on here? We'd prefer with, you don't if it's reason. necessary. <laughs> okay. If it, so I had a not nice word for my cancer. Was this the F cancer? No, okay. this I called the cancer an asshole. <laughs> I think that's a fair we can, description. We can, we can let you get away <laughs> yeah. with that. Okay. And my thought behind that was only assholes invade a space. And so this asshole has invaded my space. They're, it's unwelcome. And so my mindset was I'm going to get this asshole out of me. We're going to get rid of it, and I'm going to go on with life. So, yeah, this isn't going to be a very fun year, but then I'll just move on and be good. And the more I got into that, the more I became aware of, like, crap. No, no, I don't get to go back to my old life. I get to change my eating habits. I get to change my health. I get to, I have affected my entire family, and we are not going to be the same. And... I get to grieve. I I get to grieve not only having cancer, but I get to grieve losing my identity from before. And that recognition was really hard to absorb, potentially even harder than the initial diagnosis of cancer. So I'm curious, how was that? That, That's uh, pretty pretty similar to what I experienced mm-hmm. you know in early in recovery I figured okay and and I feel I committed to it early that you know I am going to beat this disease but I did feel and then I just go back to normal everything's gonna be the same um, and you know it was before I ref- left residential that I realized nothing will ever be the same you know that that was when you know Basically, I did a complete flush of my history and, you know, it was kind of decided that I would flush everything away and then I would determine what pieces of that life I can now reach back to and pull back together. Yes. Safely. Yes. So there was, that that was hard to 
the grief was real, especially the alcohol and the drugs I was using. Mm-hmm. The thought of not having those was terrifying. Yeah, for a while. Yeah, no, uh, I've I've heard many times um, clients referring to their their substance as their best friend, mm-hmm. and having to say goodbye to your best friend is incredibly difficult, especially when they're still alive and well. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Just a phone call away. Right. They're like just waiting for you right there. (laughs) Yeah. Because they're not going to set the boundaries. You have to. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's hard. That's, it's a hard thing to emotionally do. Um, I love that you, you gave that description because a lot of times the way I, okay, so I brought in this, I, I'm a, like I was saying, I'm visual. I need to be able to look at something or my brain starts to go somewhere else. Um, but I really, there's a whole bunch of different models that are used in helping to explain the grief pattern, the grief cycle. A lot of them are very linear and they're just not very accurate. I like this one, which is by... Um, a guy named Bowley, he does a lot of attachment stuff. But I like his because it's circular. And it's recognizing that we're going to be going through our grief cycle multiple times. It's not just, I've gone through this, I'm good. I don't ever have to grieve again. And that also is very harmful to think that way. Because that is not even close to how we operate we are going to be going back again and again to grieve and it's recognizing that we're not going back and doing the exact same thing all over again we're just picking up other components so usually what occurs is the first time you're going through that cycle is the most intense it's the most hard it's the one that you're going to want to resist the most um And the times that you go through it again are going to feel a little bit easier because you have gone through it already once. But I like to use the analogy of a toy box, which is kind of what you were talking about in terms of pieces. And I like to think of my life as this very organized toy box. And I know exactly where everything went, (laughs) you know, like building shape blocks or something, right? And everything fits in its own little perfect space. And it's just really tidy and neat and your event comes along and knocks over your toy box and that toy box just scatters to the wind and you're just looking at it and it's massive mess and it's chaotic and you're just like overwhelmed you're shocked because how could somebody come and disrupt your toy box and as you slowly lean in and start to go into that world of acceptance of like okay yeah I definitely didn't want this to get dumped but it did and so now I get to look at all those pieces and as I'm looking at all these pieces I'm going to get to pick and choose which ones go back into the toy box I'm going to find out that there are potentially new pieces that have arrived that are going to need to find a way to fit in and I'm going to find some pieces don't belong anymore and they get to be left out and And so, like I said, I'm a visual thinker. And as you go through that, it means that your toy box is getting disrupted again and again. But potentially not a full dumping, 
right? It's just like, oh, wait, I thought this piece fit, but it actually really isn't. And now I got to spring clean it up a little bit. I really like that idea because I remember learning in like a psych 101 class about the five stages of grief. And I could probably name maybe four or five, but you know, it's like Mm -hmm. depression and anger and acceptance and so on. And it was very linear. It was like, you start here and then you go to this one and this one and this one and then acceptance and you're done. Right. And I never felt that way because sometimes you can be depressed and then you can be angry about it. But then you might go back to depression. Yeah. And there is that kind of ebb and flow just depending on life events, how you're feeling, other things that maybe trigger that grief again. Mm -hmm. Totally. 100%. Yeah. And that's, for me, that's the a big problem with those linear things is there's this thought that I'm supposed to be in this stage right now and I can't be thinking about those other stages and okay here now I have to move mm-hmm. into this stage and now I and it again it's a way some people might actually do that and I have talked to some people and they do do that and that's like okay great that's that works for them. that was yeah that was what you actually did but that's not fair or accurate to say that that's what everybody does and so anybody who isn't fitting into that perfect mold Mm -hmm. there's shame and there's judgment that comes up um i don't i use i use that shame and judgment a lot i personally in terms of dealing with grief i feel that uh, mindfulness is incredibly important to be practicing while you're doing that you said Chris's favorite word. I know I did. <laughs> that is his favorite word. <laughs> like perked up a little bit. There. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it just always brings me back to center anytime anybody even says the word. Yeah, yeah. But I do. I think that I think that mindfulness is really, really important because a lot of times what we're grieving is not necessarily what is occurring to us presently. Yeah. It's it's what has occurred to us. And mindfulness can be a really helpful tool in terms of keeping us grounded and keeping us present and still acknowledging the pain that is associated and not having us slip into the past as we're grieving, but yeah. remain present in our grief. If that well, makes perfect sense to me, <laughs> I dig what you're saying. <laughs> So I would love to hear more about this circle. Yeah. It's the grief. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about the grief wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and like I said, it's um, a concept that was brought up by Bowlby um, that instead of having our linear type of thing, and he relabeled things. So very much still has, there's some models that have five stages and there's some models that have seven stages, but it, it very much still incorporates all of that. But it's a recognition that we wind up going into having our event occur. And when that event occurs, we feel a loss, like something just got yanked out of us. And like a baby. <laughs> like a baby. <laughs> right? Like... Like, ooh, I love having my baby. Yes. I've seen you guys with your baby. I know you love having your baby. <laughs> she's so much fun. She's pretty awesome. Um, and with that, right, it's this like, wow, I have my baby. This is amazing. This is wonderful. And I'm sleep deprived. I've lost my sleep. Um, and I'm, what else? So sleep deprived 
as well as you know my time is not my own at all my time is now all about this tiny human who can't fend for themselves and they Mm -hmm. need me to do everything for them yeah and and as you come to realize all of these things that you have lost there is the potential of being overwhelmed and shocked yes that it 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 can sometimes it can feel like this little ripple that comes and disrupts your life other times it can feel like a big mac truck has just bowled you over it 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 really depends and it's not even always necessarily what the actual event was it's more the emotions and the way that you're reacting to it i think that you're familiar with the concept of big T and little T traumas, mm-hmm. right? So it's the idea that we have lots of things occur in our life and our brain is not necessarily weighing those all out on a scale. Our brain is more just receiving this event in and then responding to that event. And different people are going to respond differently. Different people are going to feel differently. Um, If you are receiving information and you are feeling super centered and grounded and you're just in a good space, you're going to respond to that information differently than if you are feeling overwhelmed already. Um, An example, last summer I had five, deaths occur in a six-week time period oh wow and it was rough it was really rough and the first one it was like okay yeah that that's that's hard it's really hard by time the sixth one happened I was like oh I need some time off (laughs) I I need time to really just center myself and so interestingly no though the second one was probably the one that if you were to put it onto a scale was the heaviest. But the one I that kind of knocked me on my feet was the very last one because I had already been shifted to a point of not being able to receive more events. When you've had this big bundle of grief that you're probably mm-hmm. just carrying around that yeah. can be so heavy. Totally. Yeah. And and I was doing grief work through the whole thing. I was allowing myself to feel the shock. I was allowing myself to feel the protest and the resistance. And I was, you know, encouraging myself to just lean in. And it's okay, right? That it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. It's It's okay to feel angry and to feel upset and to feel all of those things. And the more we are able to actually lean in means that we're able to shift away from this level of protest and move into actually looking at that toy box that is scattered to the wind and start to rebuild those pieces. And so what the wheel talks about here is that we go into loss then we go into our shock, which is, again, that's very subjective. It can be a couple seconds. It could be a couple days. It could be a couple weeks sometimes, more often in the couple seconds to couple days piece. And then that protest that, you know, if somebody has put themselves into a place of judgment, a place of, I was never taught how to grieve. I don't know what to do. 
they can potentially be stuck in that place of protest and disorganization for years, um, sometimes decades. Mm-hmm. And, and, what and that's does, where that substance use would come in. What does protest and disorganization feel like or how does it manifest to people? With protest, a lot of times you have anger. Okay. Um, rage, even sometimes. You have depression that can occur if it's been going on for a long enough period of time. Um, Withdrawn, isolation. Um, It can also be avoidance um, type behaviors, which is where the substance use would come in, in terms of like, I don't want to feel this. Mm -hmm. This sucks. (laughs) Push that away. Also, that cyclical, like, feelings and memories can come in, right? Where you're just stuck in a memory thought or you're stuck in the past and it's just replaying and you're really not able to have yourself be present. Is that... That that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for that definition because I think those feelings and how it manifests can be different in people and it's nice to call those out and say this is this is what f- protest means mm-hmm. this is what you might be feeling yeah and, and i think also importantly is how do you deal with that how do you in a healthy way make sense of it and and move forward so that and give yourself permission to grieve all yeah. in the same box and it's hard it's really really hard and um i don't think i meant anxiety also can come into that so again it it depends on how that person is reacting there are some people who grieve and never feel anger they don't Mm -hmm. and that's okay there isn't there isn't a set right way to grieve and and so i that's also why i really don't like that linear thing because anger is one of the things in there um, yeah, and and it is an isolated step, right? You know, it's interesting it's like, too. I, you know, I've read that a lot of times when like a couple goes through the a death of a child, a lot of times it leads to divorce because they aren't able to work through their grief uh, because there's that expectation of grief is the same duration and time, and so right. one may be really dealing with that protest phase while the other one is still in more of a disorganization or reorganization and why aren't you feeling as bad as mm-hmm. I am? We went through the same event. Shouldn't we be in the same place? Right. But that's not how it is. Not even close. No, not. Yeah. Thank you for sure. That's also important when you're grieving that similar to addiction, that you have a grief partner. In the recovery world, uh, there's a lot of language in terms of having an accountability. I uh, can't talk. Accountability buddy. Um, I don't think I said that right either. So, you know, how would you say that word? I think accountability partner. Yeah, is fine. thank you. Yeah, you, know, you did. Um, what are they called in the AA community? Oh, a sponsor? A sponsor. Yeah. yeah. So, something along those lines, meaning that it's somebody that you can connect to in regards to your recovery work. It isn't necessarily your best friend. It isn't necessarily your marriage partner. Sometimes it is, but not always. And so similar to grieving, it's important to make sure that who you're surrounding yourself with are people who understand that you need to grieve and that you need to grieve in your own time, that they're not trying to push you along into the next step, they're just there to help support you 
and with that support is the communication of I accept you which is then helping that person feel loved and feel accepted and be able to lean in on their own and and go into the next step if that makes sense it does um and so sometimes dealing with the loss of a child the married couple Yes, it's important for them to grieve together and to communicate together, but it's also equally, if not more important, that they also have other people that they can grieve to separately and feel that they have support of themselves versus a miscommunication between the couples. Um, And while we're on that, I, I just, because of our situation, which, you know, Amy was right from the start was great, but my addiction was, was unknown to her. I had hit it so well. So here I am going to treatment and, you know, getting this inpatient program, all this help all the time. And she's supporting me in it, but yet she's experiencing grief of her own. This Mm -hmm. is like, this was a bomb to her. And so she's trying to help me along, but going through her own stuff. And I didn't recognize that initially. So it was just all me, 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 right? Yeah. What, have you seen that before? I mean, touch on that for me if you can. Yeah, no. And I love that you're bringing that up because in many ways, the loss of a substance use is kind of similar to the idea of a loss of a child in that... I'm guessing you didn't love the substance the way you would a childhood. I am not trying to <laughs> make that <laughs> no, but, but because it becomes such a part of your life. But it now is. there's that loss. Exactly. And, and it was a part of that family structure, whether you were aware or not aware of it. It was a part of that. And there, I'm guessing there's also a piece of grieving of the person I loved had this... Yes. Relationship that I wasn't aware of. And I always felt like the person I thought you were was not who you were. And that's the message that kept going in my mind is the happiness that I thought we had didn't exist. And the happiness that I thought we would have doesn't exist. And those were the doom and gloom thoughts that entered into my mind early on and that I had to really kind of probe and evaluate and just sit with. And then come to the terms of, well, the person that you are still at your core is the same. You're still a nice guy. You still care about people. You're the kind of guy that goes into a room and people that know you genuinely care about that Chris. I love that Chris. He's so nice. You're the life of the party, but not about being shock and awe, but just genuinely connecting with people. And that remained. And that was so great because of all the good qualities that you have became better by going through recovery. And the happiness that I wanted to have as a family into the future became better because of going through this experience, but really going through the experience, really accepting it and really trying to understand it and talk about it, at least for my experience. I love it because you actually just walked yourself through that grief cycle. Well, yay, I get an A for the day. (laughs) I'll put that on my report card and stick it on the fridge. Right, but but you did. You just, you walked yourself through remembering those Mm -hmm. things, right? That that stage of shock was, I I don't know if I know this person. Yes. That would be that shock stage. And that protest stage 
would be some still of, I don't know if I know this person Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I have it in me to figure this out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can stay. And and anger. I felt anger. I felt anger toward you, Chris. Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to go hit you or beat you up because again, that's not my personality, but I also felt anger, intense anger to a lot of the individuals that had contributed to your addiction, even though you're the one that sought out the substances, I, I felt intense anger toward them. And it was interesting last week, our last episode that we recorded and we walked through that week of detox, it really like ruffled all those old memories and I started to feel anger again yeah and I was like oh I'm really mad at that person I'm mad that they did that thing and I'm so mad about that CNA that you were you know buying drugs from because they're working in the medical field and using the proceeds of the drug sales to fund their education in nursing school and I'm just mad at them and I want to tell them I'm mad at them and then I went they don't care it doesn't matter to them they can move along and find somebody else to buy their prescription. It doesn't matter to them. I, I got to just sit with the anger, label it for what it is, and just deal with the present. At least that's what went through my mind. Right? Love this. So when you did your initial shift all the way through, mm-hmm. around how long did that take? I would probably say... A couple months, I think. Yeah. And then it was just certain things along the road that we would deal with. A memory. It's mm-hmm. always a memory or a moment, a location. And you're going, oh, that hurts my feelings. Mm-hmm. And that hurt comes back or that anger comes back or mm-hmm. that, oh, that didn't happen. But I have to accept it for what it is. And I can't really tell you now when those moments come up because they mm-hmm. can just come out of the blue. Yeah. Those are actually called um, grief bursts. Ah, um, there you go. There's a word for, for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I want to point out, right, that that first time took a couple months mm-hmm. versus what you're describing that happened last week. It sounds like it didn't even take a day. Yeah. I just kind of, I had to sit with it. And, and then it kind of cycled back a week later where it was, even just last night, I was mm-hmm. editing that podcast and these memories as I'm listening to the stories and I'm visualizing being there and and finding out this information. And it does, it just stirs emotions. It does. Good and bad emotions. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, and yes, it does. And that's the, the recognition that, okay, I worked through this and it took me a couple months to go Mm -hmm. through that. And even still, I'm allowed to have some of those emotions come back up. And I'm allowed to be angry at my partner. Mm-hmm. And I'm allowed all those things. And and so that's that communication that's important from both sides. Because the partner, I mean, I know you, Chris, and you are so fantastic and fabulous. Go on. <laughs> that's why we do this podcast. So parents can just get free compliments. On. She's on to me. Um, but, but you... I've seen are supportive of hearing I'm mad and and that helps to validate your emotions and your feelings it's huge it's massive which means that you guys are both able to be moving forward in a relationship Mm -hmm. recognizing that your relationship that you have now 
is not the same relationship you had before. And potentially it might be even better because that communication is much more honest and transparent and real. Our communication is so much better than it probably ever would have been by going through these experiences and that I'm grateful for. Yeah, I had communication was not one of my strong suits before I went to treatment. I was horrible at it. If there was any kind of disagreement or argument, not just with her, with anybody in my life, it was like, I'm out. You know, we're not going to talk about this, especially if I was losing the argument. (laughs) And I'm more of a, I want to talk about it in the right context and hear both sides and can we make sense of it together? I, I guess I am kind of touchy-feely, even though in general, I'm more of a closed person. I'm not a hugger. You're a hugger. I'm not a hugger. I'm more of a talker. One of the best, I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> so so then looking at how in an recovery, it's important to have an accountability partner or a... I still the sober living... Or the... Oh, the sponsor. Sponsor, Sponsor, thank you. I don't work very closely with AA, and so that word just doesn't stick in my brain for some reason. Um, But the the equivalent to needing a grief partner and needing to have somebody who is available for you and gets it. So I'm curious, did you have people that were not Chris that you talked to during that? I had a therapist that I still see, and I ended up trying to do more appointments once your addiction came to light and you were in detox and rehab just so I could have somebody with that experience and guidance. I also spoke a lot to my sister, who has never experienced this, but is very empathetic and very wise, and I spent a lot of time talking to her and my mom. And through my sister, she introduced me to somebody that she knows really well that had gone through a very similar situation with her husband. And I remember, oh, it's so nice to talk to somebody that is in my boat because the people that are in my boat, I know they exist, but they don't talk about it. And there's no like easy way to find them. And I, I wanted to find somebody that could help me make sense of those feelings and tell me yes I I felt that too it was Mm -hmm. nice to go yeah I felt that too and let me tell you more how I felt and it may be different for me but it was really nice really cathartic so I would say a lot of different people in my life ended up being a grief partner whether they realized it or not even if it was just for a moment of the you know an evening of their time or for more of a you know a paid therapist that I was going to on a weekly monthly basis I love the people that you've you've listed off because it what I'm hearing from that is that you selected people who you knew would be good listeners yes and they really were yeah and and not coming at it from a place of judgment Mm -hmm. and and with that person that you reached out to who had a, a spouse that was also in recovery being able to talk to them and feeling support from them. It's like a grief group. It is. It was this informal grief group that now, uh, until we talked about it, I didn't really even label them as such, but they were so comforting to have in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so that's really important in grieving, in any type of grieving, that you find people who are available. 
And, and like I said, it isn't always necessarily the partner. Um, sometimes it is, but it really needs to be, if, even if that is a case, it needs to be the partner plus other people. Mm -hmm. So when I was diagnosed with cancer, my husband and I talked to each other a lot. Um, if you know my husband, you can understand why we talked a lot because my husband also talks a lot. I, I, and I actually do know your husband and I was so impressed with how he handled, uh, going through your cancer together. And he wrote this beautiful, poem is that the right term I know he does like slam poetry Mm -hmm. and other types of storytelling and com I mean he's a man of many talents and it was just very raw and emotion and it I I loved it and I loved how he would share on social media the highlights and the lowlights Mm -hmm. of your journey together yeah which was very much his one of his ways of grieving um his performing that piece he would allow himself to grieve on stage many times while he was doing that um so so he had other outlets and I had my therapist he actually also went to a therapist during that time and he had friends that he talked to and I had friends that I talked to and that meant that when we came together that we were able to connect as a couple and not start forming some codependent type relationship and actually working together and healing together and being able to see more clearly that it was really okay that we weren't always on the same level of grieving and that we were seeing different things while we were grieving and all of that was okay. And I'm not sure if we had only stuck to talking to each other about what was going on, if that's what would have been happening for us. Um, Because that's where it's this piece of like, well, wait a minute, I'm here. Why haven't you already gotten Mm -hmm. here? Um, And I, I managed to work through that piece. Why haven't you? Or I'm going through the cancer and I'm the one getting all these treatments. You're not allowed to break down here. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little different, I think. <laughs> yeah. well, it's a little more sympathy sometimes, but I, I, she was very empathetic with me. But, right. Always. And here's, but here's the thing, right? I mean, so huh, withdrawal symptoms and chemo treatment so many similarities so many similarities to pause and chemo treatment symptoms um a lot of the it's ironic actually a lot of the the medications that are prescribed to somebody going through chemo in terms of ways to help manage the side effects are the exact same medications that are prescribed somebody while they're experiencing pause that's interesting and pause super similar it's unpleasant oh my gosh it's terrible (laughs) (laughs) cancer is equally if not more unpleasant i think it varies in individually so that's fascinating that they both have those similarities of because i i had no idea yeah i didn't either till i got to experience it and like i'd have somebody like listing off stuff i'm like yeah (laughs) i know exactly what you're describing here 
This sucks. <laughs> it's, it's a little brutal. Yeah. And so there can be, as the individual going through that recovery and that pause and all of those things, there can also be a level of anger directed towards the loved one where it potentially there's that level of you aren't the one that's going through all these changes right now there's a there's a potential disconnect and I'm not I don't think that you guys necessarily had that I think that that's actually something that was really cool to observe from the get-go with you guys um but with couples and grieving that that potentially also can come in is that level of disconnect of like you referred to a loss of a child mm-hmm. where it's it's recognizing my grief and my relationship with this entity and not being able to recognize that the other person has their own relationship and their own type of grief and so that's also where that communication can break down and if you have other people to talk to then you have a higher chance of being able to then get to a place where you guys can talk together and see okay I'm seeing your experience and you're not judging me for my experience Mm -hmm. I really think that was what we went through we really jumped into good open honest communication which for me was super beneficial because I wanted to know how you were feeling and I wanted to understand it more. And I wanted to also be able to share, I'm really mad at you. And there were times when I'd call you an inpatient specifically as I was starting to come to terms and understand more information was coming out. And I wanted you to just hear me. I I didn't necessarily want to take joy in being angry at you but i had to let it out and say hey i'm really mad about this and i need you to listen and hear me through this Mm -hmm. i don't need you to make sense of it all and fix it right now because that's an impossible request but i need to let this out or it will just build and build and build and build in me and that was the i think the tougher part the the shame that it was inside of me on it really made that piece of it hard when she would come Mm -hmm. at me with that and you know about the time I was able to drop the shame I was able to just know she just needs to vent and she's entitled to do this and it what I need to do right now is just listen to her I don't need to try to defend my actions you know this is this is in the past it happened and she has every right to be angry and I get to just listen yeah and once that happened and I actually learned that from Dennis is like just I really felt that's when our communication really started to click it really did and and as far as pause goes we you know we knew it was coming I mean they taught us that it was part of the binder I read up on it consistently you asked me to read on that was awesome to say hey Amy I need you to educate yourself on this because I think it's going to happen more likely than not and it was so helpful to know what to expect and also be able to ask you exploratory questions, not judging questions, but more of, hey, tell me what you're feeling so that we could label it and go, you know what? That sounds like pause. Yeah. All right, cool. We, we know what this is. So 
let's find some good strategies to deal with this in a healthy way. That's right. I'm going to go to sleep for two months. Wake me up. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could all do that. <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of nice. Yeah, that'd be nice with grieving, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Just go just to sleep, let let this all heal and be good and wake up and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, the the big draw to substances, really. Yes. Um, it's a desire to check out. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, drugs and alcohol are great coping tools. Mm -hmm. They, they really are. are. But they are destructive coping tools. And what you're using them for to mask that whatever phase of grief or just the overall grief together is always waiting for you. Yeah. Always. It is. It is. Um, yeah, for sure. And so when I say that sometimes people are stuck in that shock and protest and disorganized, um, you know, their life is pretty chaotic, potentially for decades. So grief does not go away with time. Time does not heal all wounds. It doesn't. Time heals all wounds when you allow yourself to feel, mm -hmm. when you allow yourself to lean in to that discomfort, to that disorganized, chaotic, really, really scary space. That leaning in, which is a mindfulness mm -hmm. thing. I know. <laughs> You're like starting to get all like giddy. I love yeah, it. So even your yeah. face, like smiles yeah. and you, your skin gets all brighter. Mm. <laughs> I love it. Um, but that's, that's part of that piece. And so that's also, I think why I, the more I had myself acknowledging that I need to figure out how to grieve, um, and what grieving looks like for me, the more passionate I became about it for other people, because it was the recognition of if, if somebody is not actually taught how to grieve and somebody is not given the space to be able to grieve, they are not going to get better. I've had some clients that grieve in treatment, things that happened to them 20, 30 years ago. And, and that's heartbreaking that they have had to carry that extraordinarily heavy, heavy load for such a long time, simply because they weren't exactly sure how they were supposed to deal with it. Hmm. For you, in terms of, I'm curious, your recovery, what, what would your grieving, like, I'm curious what that looks like on the grieving wheel. Uh, well... I, I think that, you know, obviously there was a grief. Um, you know, I, I do recall, I, I think, um, the loss of it, the shock, obviously, you know, it's like I'm in an intervention and then the next morning I wake up in treatment. And so, you know, there is that kind of that shock. And I don't know... Um, the, the protest, I think, I, I'm not sure how I protested it. I, all I remember thinking is, you know, you know, this could be over or this is my opportunity to put this behind me. Something that I didn't like the fact that I was locked in addiction. I was 
I was angry with this substance for a decade. You know, this it didn't work anymore. I had to have it just to function normally. And but yet it was my top priority. It was my best friend, it was my child, it was my spouse. Yeah. It was everything to me and I that was what I made sure was tended to before anything else in my life. I, I had to make sure that the needs of my addiction were met before I could function and take care of the needs of even myself, which in a way I guess the addiction was me, but to take care of the people around me. And so, you know, to take that away, that this thing that's like all of a sudden I'm realizing, I, you know, this could be it. I could be done with this. Um, I, I just, I don't know that I really felt the, the anger that I think I felt through that process. I felt toward myself in a strange way and not to be confused with the shame piece. You know, the anger, there was true anger with myself Mm -hmm. that I had let it go so long, just knowing that never having the courage to have reached out for help and then having an intervention and kind of really being given a stiff nudge into treatment, you know, that it would have just been a lot simpler if I had just had the courage to reach out. So that's where I think where the anger with myself came. It's like, you know, look at people rally around you right now. And, and you know, but all I know is, is I knew I would miss it. And I knew it was a friend I could count on. And, you know, I've experienced a lot of death, uh, most of it untimely in my life. And so, you know, I know that grief, or maybe I didn't, you know, I mean, I did mask a lot of that with addiction. I mean, but the more I experienced death, the the easier it became, you know, anger wasn't something I experienced a lot either through Mm -hmm. the death cycle. You know, I just, someone would die and it was crushing and it hurt. But I also understood this is just life. Yeah. You know, this has happened to me enough that I understood people die. This happens and there's nothing I can do about it. And it's no matter what happened to cause that death, it's really nobody's fault. Somebody has died. That's the end of it. And I don't know if this relates to you, but something I have heard from clients in recovery when they're starting to break down what's going on that sometimes for them that protest is not always letting go of the substance the protest is letting go of their former identity letting go of friendships and connections that they had that they're now recognizing this is not safe but there are a lot of pieces about that friendship I really want to keep having um so it's, it's the, I, I, I'm fine with giving up this. I really don't want to give up this, 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 and this. Yeah. And that's where kind of more of the disorganization of grief kind of, it, that's what it felt like. And I don't know that I felt a lot of protest because, mm-hmm. you know, my main goal initially was to prove that I was serious about this and I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to start to earn trust back. So, but the disorganization of, you know, here's all of this stuff and I don't know what's good for me and what's bad for me right now. And so, 
by kind of just flushing everything, it almost eliminated the disorganization mm-hmm. that I felt because it, it was like the slate was wiped clean. And so, you know, that kind of led to the reorganization part, which still is in process, you know, um, still finding out what what is good for me. And, and um, sometimes things that really pieces of my recovery that I picked up that weren't part of my life before that I realize this isn't good for me. This isn't a good piece of my recovery. This, this needs to go. Um, so, you know, that it, it's hard for me to speak on it because as I look at, at these stages of grief here, um, that's really, I mean, there was a grieving process for this, but merely in the sense that, you know, am I going to be able to move on yeah. without this? Yeah. Can I really make it? Because most of my adult life, I had something and mm-hmm. just happened at that point in my life. I had a whole lot of something. Yeah. So, so am I going to be able to move on without this? That, that's the fear piece that component coming up and that actually is that piece that goes on right in here it can be i i I like to think of that as kind of a tipping point that potentially a person might go into this this is really scary can i do this and it's that piece of i'm not sure but i'm gonna lean in i'm gonna see what happens or it's potentially, I, I don't have it in me to find out. I, I, I'm not going there. I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. And, and we backtrack. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I say we in the all-encompassing. I mean that this, this is not simply a, a recovery type of thing. This is, this is human nature, right? That resistance to change. Um, but with that resistance that comes up and that backtrack, that's where the potential of the relapse occurs or the language of, I'm not sure if they were ready. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and again, it's not a judgment piece on that. It's just, it's truly that piece of like, it takes a lot. It takes a whole lot to allow yourself to go, okay, am I ready to lean in and, just allow everything to be examined and be looked over so that I figure out how to reorganize things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I hear you in terms of you're saying, I'm not exactly sure if I fit, but what I'm hearing you describe, you very much do because you went through a process of recognizing it was a substance you were saying goodbye to, but it was all so so many other things which the category is secondary losses that examination of self of can I do this and and you're responding back of like yeah it's worth it I'm gonna do this I I do not want to lose what I have and I'm I'm leaning in and so you did you went through this grief cycle and maybe it doesn't look like this really nice pretty little step by step by step and it shouldn't Mm -hmm. because it was yours it's not a perfect little picture on a page it's yours 
your work and how you did it. And it's, it's similar to tools learned in recovery. Some are going to be fantastic and awesome and work perfectly for you. And others are going to be like, yeah, it's a good tool, but it doesn't fit for me. And it's the same thing with grieving. It's, it's messy because a lot of it is trying to discover what is it that's going to work for me. So I would like to ask, we talked about some of the tools to manage grief in a healthy way, mm-hmm. like having good grief partners in a mm-hmm. grief circle yeah. that you can rely on, whether they're therapists, close friends and family. What are some of the other ways to really feel your emotions in the right way so that you're not trapped in a very negative space where grief is overwhelming? Mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> mindfulness can just be great because so much of the practice of mindfulness encourages you to remain grounded, remain present, and lean in. And and allow yourself to gain strength in knowing that you are capable of handling something. And that is so much of grieving. Our, our bodies and our brain, um, and I say bodies just because bodies hold emotions. Um, so our bodies and our brains are incredibly knowledgeable if we give it the space, if we give it the time to experience that. And so it's the acceptance that I'm going to be okay if I lean in because my body and brain are going to allow me to feel something to a point and then I'm going to start to naturally pull back and give myself a break and and there's this ebb and flow that that occurs with grieving and if it doesn't naturally start to be an ebb and a flow that is something different, right? That's spiraling into a depression. And that's why it would be really helpful to have a grief partner and somebody who can help be a sounding board in terms of like, okay, you you know, you've beat yourself up on this for days and days. Do you really want to be a punching bag right now? Do you, do you want to give yourself a break and, and just kind of be, right? Yeah, the punching bag analogy is real. <laughs> <laughs> there can be that language of, I'm not grieving enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, I need to punish myself more and I need to beat myself up more. Even though my mind, my body are saying, oh, breathe, just back off. I'm like, no, 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 I can't. I have to keep doing my work. I have to keep leaning in. I have to keep doing this. And that can be dangerous because that means that you're not allowing your body to give itself that restorative cycle. Restorative cycles are just as important as the work, kind of similar to going to a gym, right? We have our work. We, if you actually go to the gym, I don't go to the gym. Um, but you have your workout days, right? And then you have your rest days. And, and those are important. And the rest days are just as important as the workout days because it's giving that muscle and everything to have a chance to rebuild, right? The, the working out. My understanding is it actually tears muscles, which 
sounds it's unpleasant right <laughs> but people love to work out in wow. some respect right <laughs> so it's it's one of those things where it's like okay if i'm constantly doing tears and i'm it's not like a major tear my understanding is the little mini tears and as it rebuilds right that's when that muscle rebuilds stronger so if you're just doing a whole bunch of little mini tears you're not giving a chance for that muscle to come back stronger and it actually is going to be weaker and the same thing is with grieving. If you're not letting yourself have a break from feeling all the feels, have a chance to make sure that you are remaining present and you are appreciating all of the beautiful things around you, then you're also not doing that grief work the way that your body and your mind need. And that also can be a part of the misunderstanding that society does. Mm-hmm. That there's this like expectation of, wait, you just experienced this horrible thing. Why are you laughing? Mm-hmm. Or on the other end of that spectrum, you know, it's been so much time. Why aren't you through this yet? I right. Think putting a timeline on it that's one thing i would say about grief is take your time to do it so you can do it right so you can get through it don't listen to timelines don't follow it it's that is dangerous to me very very dangerous and and that's that component of making sure that you have a really helpful support group network of people who are giving you that space so you can potentially have a best friend who if they're giving you that language of wait really it's been it's been a month it's been a year really we're we're talking about this again it doesn't mean that they're a bad friend it doesn't it just means that they're not a good grief partner yeah that's a well-said statement because not everybody has the capacity to really be a good grief partner and that's no. okay. Mm-hmm. Similar to um, accountability partners, right? Some people are like, look, I, I, I don't want to call you out on stuff. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I could talk about grief forever. I really could. It, um, I just... Like I said, I feel like the more that as a society we come to understand that grief is just a part of our daily lives and and the more we are able to teach everybody how to grieve, the easier it is to handle unpleasant things and change. Um, and so I love that you guys asked me to come in to do this because I really feel like grief and loss not only hits recovery as an extraordinarily important component to it, but just people in general. Um, And the more that we're able to get out there, that grieving is such a personal and very, um, I don't know what the word is, but just something that occurs for everyone yeah so it is it it is a universal part of the human experience but we all experience it in a different way and in a different timeline and 
an emotional feeling aspect as well. At least that's what I'm getting from our conversation in general yes. and my personal experiences. Yes. No, thank you. And I love you putting into that nice little pretty little package. You're welcome. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. So, But I appreciate the time. Thank no, you. Thank, thank you, you for so joining much. us. I really appreciate it, Julia. And I appreciate all you've done for my recovery. Oh. It's always good to see your face. And yours as well. Okay. So the song that we have selected, Julia picked yeah, it Yeah, I was going to say, we didn't select it. We asked Julia, what songs or song really helped you deal with the grieving process as you went through cancer treatments? And so you picked a lovely song. I'll let you introduce it and talk about what it means to you. It's Just Breathe by Pearl Jam. I stumbled across this song... Um, I can't remember. I think it was towards the end of my chemo treatments as I was headed into my surgery. And I I really appreciate the way that grief is articulated in this song and that there's this level of acceptance that this is happening and this is happening whether I want it to or not. And there's this lovely it goes into the mindfulness, the just breathe, of just leaning in and just breathe um, and and allow yourself to feel the feels. So I shed many and many tears to this song. Well, give it a listen. And thanks again, Julia. And everyone have a great day. Yes, I understand that every life must end. Uh-huh. 